This chapter number 39, um, we have had quite an adventure. This is our 92nd message in the book of Exodus. Praise God. We've been in it for over a year and a half. This whole series is called The Great Escape. We've been walking verse by verse, expositorily, through the entire chapter. We've got a few more weeks to go, and we will be wrapping this up. And then after that, we're going to be moving into the book of Joshua, which is really neat because Joshua is actually Moses, who we've been following this story. His disciple is Joshua. Joshua is the Hebrew term for the word for the name Jesus, which is really, really cool. So Joshua is going to be an incredible adventure for us. Who knows? It might take us three years. We shall see. <laughs> we'll see what the Lord allows and how he will guide. Uh, we simply allow him to be the boss of everything here. So uh, as we're working through this book uh, of Exodus last week, uh, we spent the first half of our entire message talking about really understanding the intricacies of God's call upon the Israelites, the fact that they were called to be a nation of priests. Then as we worked past those, that group, which is the nation as a whole, we went to a more specialized group. We look at the Levites, the Levitical priesthood. These men were chosen out of a specific family line that they would be priests. Then we went to a more specialized group again, and we looked at the Aaronic covenant. We looked at those sons of Aaron, and we looked at Aaron's sons and, and, and Aaron as well, and that they're doing is they're called to be the day-to-day -day servants in the tabernacle of God. And then we got all the way down to Aaron. And Aaron had a very specific role. God had called him specifically to be the high priest. And what we saw here was as we focused on him, we saw the fact that he as the high priest would bear the sins of the world, the sins of, of the people, and he would go before God and he would make sacrifices on behalf of the people. And what we saw there is as he walked through the Holy of Holies, right? That was the inner sanctum of the, of the tabernacle. When he would enter into that veil, he had an opportunity to be at the mercy seat of God. And what he would do is he would bring an animal sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, and he would pour that out as an atonement, not only for his own sin, but for the sins of the world. And what we talked about last week was we saw this picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's our high priest. If you go to Hebrews chapters 9 and 10, you see that clearly laid out for us. So Jesus is our high priest. What does he do? He bears the sins of the world, right? He bears them to God. And as he takes that, the sin of the world, he gave his own innocent blood instead of an animal sacrifice, his blood was given as an atonement for the sins of the world. So we saw a parallel between Aaron and the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw the parallel in position, but then last week what we also looked at is we saw a parallel in their apparel. We saw it in their apparel. So we looked at, it, at uh, Aaron's high as a high priest. He had ceremonial clothing that was being made for him specifically. It was very, very unique. Bezalel and all the other craftsmen came together and they're working as they're delivering these different parts and pieces. We're working through each piece. The one we talked talk about last week was the ephod. Now what's interesting about the ephod is it was made specifically for Aaron to make him stand out. He was not supposed to fit in with the crowd. He was supposed to stand out and look highly, highly unique. So not only in the way he was dressed, but he was supposed to be a picture of the beauty and the glory of God. He's supposed to be a personification of the beauty and glory of God. And what we did is we walked through these priests as we saw the connection that there is to us, which is so neat because the Old Testament, the way the, the Bible functions is you have the New Testament and you have the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a picture book. The New Testament is an educational book. So what we have is we have really kind of the word and we have kind of the picture. And what you have is all those Old Testament things. People are like, ah, is that really relevant? Does it really matter? Boy, oh boy, does it ever. You absolutely, if you're going to teach a child to read, you don't teach them by showing them the word ball. You, show, you teach them by showing them a picture of a ball, and then you correlate the word with the picture to help them understand it. That's exactly the way God wrote the Bible, because guess what? God's the ultimate parent. He knows how to educate. So thankfully, he gave us a picture book, and he gave us the word of God in the New Testament as well. But in 1 Peter 2, 9, he says this, But ye 
are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Speaking to the church. And here we saw that as born-again believers, what happens is God has called us to be priests unto him. We're supposed to be a holy nation, meaning we're supposed to show forth his beauty. Not only have we been called to be a holy nation, we've been told to be called a peculiar people. A peculiar people, meaning that we're supposed to stand out, just like Aaron, right? And then we also see the fact that we're supposed to show forth his praises. That is displaying the glory of God. So in each part of the ephod, what we saw was God picturing not only himself, but also his atoning work in humanity and for humanity. And then we saw the curious girdle, right? I know that sounds a little weird, but a curious girdle is basically like a sash, something you tie around your waist, okay? And so as he's wearing his curious girdle, that sash was to be designed and specifically created for the foundation, okay? That was the foundation. If you had that, and we talked about last week, if you have a robe, if you ever like put on a robe after a shower, you don't just walk around with a robe open like this, right? Hopefully not, uh, especially if we're visiting you at your house. Um, but you close your robe, right? And then you have your, your sash, right? And you tie it. What does it do? It makes it all secure. It is the foundation of that outfit. So we saw that sash. And what we did was we made a correlation from that sash. And we also tied that to the belt of truth that we see in Ephesians chapter number six, which is the foundation of the armor. Without that belt being tight, understand it's the belt of truth. What it teaches us is that our armor is foundationally based upon the truth of the word of God, the belt of truth. So the word of God is the foundation for all that we do. And we're going to see some more correlations with the belt of, with actually with the armor and also with what we're going to look at today. But with the high priest today, we're going to move on to the next portion. And the next portion is the breastplate, the breastplate. And we know there's a really, really cool picture in this. What we're going to do is we're going to dive into this scripture a little bit and we're going to continue. The message this morning is called Holy Garments Part 2. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much, God, for today. Thank you for each one that has committed this time, Father, to be in, the, in your house. And Lord, I do pray that you'll speak to us. Lord, I have prayed throughout the week and studied over this scripture, and God, I know you've spoken to me, and my request now, Lord, is that you would speak through me. Lord, that the human element of this message would be removed, and that, God, that I would be able to just get out of the way so that you would speak to us. Lord, help me to be a receiver, a hearer, Lord, that we might not only hear the truth, but, Lord, help it sink into our hearts that we might be changed. That's the purpose of today. It's not to come here for information, Lord. It's to come for transformation. Help us, Lord Jesus, to walk out of here a little bit more like you than we were when we walked in. God, thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Ephesians 39, chapter or verse number 8. Okay, starting in verse 8, it says, And he, and he made the breastplate of cunning work like the work of the ephod of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet, and fine twine linen. Now, if that sounds familiar, because last week we saw those exact same materials laid out for us. So this, this breastplate, this base of the breastplate, breastplate is going to be just like the ephod, made in the same way. It's also going to mimic the colors not only of the ephod, but it's also going to mimic the colors in the tabernacle, the interior walls and the entry of the tabernacle. So we see here also there's a word in here which is really interesting and important. And it says, and he made the breastplate of cunning work like, okay, like the two most important words you're going to have in the Bible as a Bible studier or someone, Bible studier, that is a really terrible terminology. Someone who studies the Bible, does that sound better? <laughs> student of the Bible, that sounds even better. So as a student of the Bible, the word as and the word like, they're extremely important because what they do is they tell you God's getting ready to teach you something additional or he's getting ready to give you an example. He's getting ready to give you a picture of what he's trying to explain as he talks about husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. You want to know how to love your wife? As Christ loved the church, right? It's pictures, pictures, pictures. So we see here he says like. So what he does, he's saying, look, this breastplate is made like the ephod. And what we found out last week as we studied the ephod was those different colors, which was so neat, is the fact that the gold 
they would actually cut that gold, they lay the gold out, and they pound it out flat. And they make these thin wires. And what we saw was very specific. God made a specific point and showed us in the ephod that that gold wire was supposed to interlace in all those colors. And what it did was it tied them all into a godly representation of those colors. So those colors represent, first of all, gold represents deity. The blue represents the healing power of God. Then the purple representing the royalty. And then that red representing the cleansing of God. The cleansing of God. So these other details we're going to find out in this breastplate, uh, there's something really neat that God actually gives back in the instructions. Back in the instructions. He doesn't tell us here, but back in the instructions, he tells us something really cool. Exodus 28, verse 15. Exodus 28, 15. It says, and thou, this is God's instruction to Moses. Moses is up on the mountain. He's receiving this from God. He's explaining to him what to do with the breastplate. And thou shalt make the breastplate, notice this, it has a different name now, the breastplate of judgment. The breastplate of judgment with cunning work after the work of the ephod, thou shalt make it of gold, a blue, and a purple, and a scarlet, and a fine twine linen shalt thou make it. So this breastplate isn't just a breastplate. This is a breastplate of judgment. And we're going to get further details on why it's called that as we go into the understanding of what this thing, and we're going to reason that out. Verse 9, it was four square. They made the breastplate double. A span was the length thereof, and a span, the breadth thereof, being doubled. Who's ever, like, seen that, you know, somebody says hang loose, right? The Hawaiian symbol. This is, when you hear the word span, that's what it is. A span is this distance right here. It's about eight inches. So we see that measurement in the scriptures. That's what it's referencing to. And what we see here is it says that it's to be eight inches square once it's been doubled. Okay, so it's going to be folded in half. What it's doing is it's making a pocket in this thing. Um, and we see here it's going to actually carry something. This breastplate is going to store something. We'll see what that is in a bit. Verse 10, and they said in it four rows of stones. The first row was a sardius, a topaz, and a carbuncle. This was the first row, okay? So you're going to look at, this is an eight-inch square of fabric, basically, we have here that's going to be worn directly onto the chest over on this ephod. Now, the ephod, understand, is very much like, a, like an apron. It's a sleeveless apron. It goes down to about this point right here. Very intricately designed. The same colors are being used in this breastplate part as well. So we see the first stone there is that sardius. And what's interesting about a sardius, sardius is tied to, it means, if you've ever seen the Church of Sardis, Okay? Sardis and Sardius, they're tied together. And what you see is that Sardius is a red, deep red stone. And what we find here is Sardis, that word Sardius, it actually, uh, Sardis actually translates red ones. Red ones. Okay? So red ones representing this, that that church of Sardis, there are seven different time periods, right? We have the, the age of the church, which is from the time of Christ all the way till today. And that there's different church ages, and that fifth church age is Sardis. And what we find with Sardis is the fact that red ones, this is the time of unbelievable persecution of the church in the world. And red ones is exactly what it was. It was a time of torturous destruction. As there were, there was, if you think back to the Crusades and what took place back then, you hear stories of horror. This is Revelation chapter number three, verses one through six, giving us a picture of that red. Then the second stone is to be topaz, which is traditionally a blue colored stone, but it can also be yellow. Then there's carbuncle, which is a deep red ruby. And outside of the diamond, this is the hardest of the stones. Then the second row, it says, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. So the fourth stone is an emerald. An emerald is a deep green stone. If you did not know that, most of us probably do. The fifth stone is a sapphire. We know the sapphire to be deep blue. The sixth stone is a diamond. Now, if a diamond is flawless, it's perfectly clear. It's also incredibly hard and very reflective. Then we have the third row. 
Third row is a ligure, an agate, and an amethyst. So the seventh stone is a ligure. Ligure is basically what we consider to be modern amber, so it's going to be kind of a deep golden color. Then the eighth stone is an agate, which should be gray uh, and can also be brown or black. The ninth stone is an amethyst, which is a deep red or deep rich purple gemstone. Then the fourth row. The fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They were enclosed in ouches of gold in their enclosings. Now that word ouch, we've seen that before. An ouch is a setting. What it's saying is these things are mounted in a gold setting. So the 10th stone being a burl. Traditionally, this is a soft golden stone. Uh, the 11th stone is an onyx, which is, we know, to be black, right? That's the onyx stones that are on the shoulders. Those are black stones. They sometimes have white veining in them. And then we have the 12th stone, which is a jasper. And a jasper is clear, looks very similar to a diamond. So each one of these has been mounted into gold, okay? What's interesting about this, a stone is a picture of humanity in the scriptures. And what you find is, what we see is the fact that the stone is still exposed, but it's mounted in gold. It has a foundation of God. Gold represents deity. So the, the stone representing humanity with a foundation of God, picturing something bigger. Then verse number 14 says this, And the stones were according to the names of the children of Israel. Twelve, according to their names, like the engravings of a signet, every one with his name according to the twelve tribes. So we see here that just like on the, on the, on the stones on the shoulders, we saw there were six names listed on each one. They were listed in, in descending order with the church displaying each one of the names of the children of Israel, or the tribes of Israel. So each stone of the twelve tribes. And what we saw here is this is Jacob, or Israel, right? Uh, Jacob's, changed, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. So these are Israel's sons, his 12 sons, which are the 12 tribes of Egypt. And what's interesting, Egypt, uh, of Israel. And what we find here is that in Genesis chapter number 49, we get the list of the names, but we also get something really, really, really cool. God is prophetically teaching us in Genesis 49 a really, really, really beautiful picture. And what we see in Genesis 49 is you see sons coming to their father at the end of their life. And as they come to him, what is he doing? He's rewarding them, okay? This is a judgment. Then he's going to judge them based upon what they've done. And he gives a, basically he commendations. He'll, some he rewards and other he doesn't reward. Some he takes things away from them. So we see sons coming before God, coming before their father to receive judgment. They're going to receive their rewards and some are going to receive reproofs. And what we see pictured in this is saved humanity. You and I as we will one day stand before our Heavenly Father. Amen. And what will He do? He will judge our service, right? He'll judge our faithfulness and reward us for it, or he will, he will reprove us or condemn us for unfaithfulness. Now, this is not in regards to sin, right? This is not about sin. As a child of God, your sin was, was, was judged on the cross. You are set free from that judgment, but what we do get judged is based upon our service unto God. How do we live this life? God says, hey, look, I gave you, I'm 53 years old. He said, David, I gave you 53 years. If I die tomorrow, he's going to say, what did you do with the 53 years I gave you? You got saved at 34. What did you do from that point forward? Did you live for yourself or did you live for me? Did you find ways to, to set your flesh aside and try to follow the, the word of God? Or did you simply follow what it is you wanted, right? And that's the struggle we talk about. We've been doing this Wednesday night study and we've been talking about what it means to be a follower of God. What does it mean to be a true follower of Christ? He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, right? That's a clear, clear thing. He says, look, so if you're not following me, guess what you're not? A fisher of men. And there are Christians that you meet and they have never, ever, ever shared the gospel with one person. They've never given their testimony in their entire life. But yet Jesus says, if you are a follower 
I will make you, doesn't say I might make you, he says I will make you a fisher of men. The result of your life, if you are honestly a follower of me, is you are going to be the result, it's going to be your life is going to speak into the life of someone else. Someone else is going to hear the truth because you're sharing your testimony, you're sharing the truth of the gospel. So listen to this in 2 Corinthians 5 verses 10 through 11 in regards to our service. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. This is written to the follower, man. This is believers. And listen, it says, based upon what we do, good or bad. Verse 11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. Listen to that phrase. The terror of the Lord. We persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your conscience. Paul says, look, man, we're chewing our best to reach you. Because you don't realize what we're talking about right here. He says, you're going to face God one day. As a believer, you think, you know what, hey, I'm just supposed to get saved and just live my life for me. No. If it was about being saved, God would save you and kill you. What would be the point of leaving you here? Why would He give us a great commission to do something? And so many of us sit back on our laurels and we think, well, yeah, the pastor will take care of it. Someone will take care of it. They love talking, sharing their gospel. Yeah, yeah, they're all about it. But I'm more of a quiet, you know, sit on the sidelines and kind of, I'll pray for you. How about that, brother? Right? That's the mindset that we have. And what we find is he say, hey, hey, no, no, no. There's an accountability coming. There's accountability coming. And he says, and we persuade men, knowing the terror of the Lord. He says, look, because you know we know. We know what we're going to face. Do we want to stand before the Lord with, with ashamed? Or do you want to stand and hear God say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Yes. Right? We're all going to face it. It's, it's a truth for every one of us. So contextually, there's no doubt this is a warning to the believer, but Paul is simply trying to tell them, hey, look, pay attention to the seriousness, the seriousness of what it is I'm telling you in your service to God. It's not about just you working on your righteousness and trying to be this good person. No, it's not about that. It's the impact that your life has on others. That's the reason why God has left us on this earth. Because not only will we be accountable as a church, but individually, we will stand accountable to God. I can't stand for you and you can't stand for me. Understand, God has a purpose and a plan. Listen to this, Romans 14, verses 10 through 12. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. And we're really good at paying attention to what our neighbor's doing. Man, I'm going to church this morning. His car has not moved. Mm-hmm. I, they were going to breakfast. I saw them. I know, I know where they are. But that, God's not going to care. You're not going to be like, hey, what about my neighbor? No, God's going to go, uh-uh. Spotlight's on you, Dave. Right. What do you got to say? Uh, it isn't going to matter. All the excuses in the world. That's how the Bible says that, they, you know, for by grace you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Oh, God, I did this. I did this. And God's going, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. Right. I see right through your whole game. The Facebook thing you got going on, you handing something to it, giving a sandwich to a poor man, click, click, hey, hey, look at me. He says, no, 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 I see through all that stuff because I look right at your heart. The Bible says man looketh on the outward appearance, God looketh on the, on the heart. Amen. Amen. Now, I don't know about you, but man, I'm thankful that I'm not going to stand before the Lord accountable for my sin. Amen. Because there's no chance for us. He took care of that. But he's asked me, hey, why don't you live for me from here on out? Why don't you set your pride aside? Why don't you set your, your desires aside? Why don't you try to put me first? Isn't it the least you could do? Right. And yet our culture tells us it's all about us. It's all about me. But according, it says, notice in this, in this scripture, when it talks about this, 
And that, it says according to, it appears. So that word according to, what that's simply saying is it's saying, look, this is a descending order according to their birth. This is a listing of the names, okay? So we see here these names are broken down on this breastplate. 12 stones, 12 names. So on the engraved on each one of these stones, there's going to be a name. On that first one, you have to see Sardius. Sardius is going to be Reuben. Reuben, that firstborn. Reuben's name means behold a son. Then we would look at that topaz stone. And on that topaz stone, it would say Simeon on it. And when it says Simeon, Simeon's name translates this, obedient. Then there's the carbuncle, which is Levi. Levi, the thirdborn, his name means joined. Then there's the emerald. Judah would be written right across that stone. Judah means praise. Then they would have the sapphire. The sapphire would be Dan written on that. And Dan, it says, that Bible, that, that word means, or his name means judge. Then there's diamond, okay? Diamond is naphtali. Naphtali is written on that stone. His name means struggle or strife. Then there's the ligure, which is the name Gad. That translates fortune. The eighth stone is an agate. The name on that would be Asher. That word, that name means happy. Then there's the amethyst. The amethyst, which translates, uh, which is, which is going to have Issachar written on it. Issachar, the name, if you translate Issachar, it is the word, his name means reward. Then there's the burl. It's the, the name on that one would be Zebulun. His name means to dwell. Then there's the onyx stone, which has Joseph written across it. Joseph's name means to add. Then there's the jasper. The jasper, which has Benjamin written on it. And Benjamin's name means the son of the right hand. The son of the right hand. And what's so cool, as we start to look at this, and I understand, as I read through those things, I looked at those definitions, I was like, man, something just started to start to stand out. This looks like some strange coincidence kind of taking place. So I want you guys to bear with me as we go back to this breastplate, and I want us to take these names, and we're going to look them in order and see if we don't see something a little bit deeper. Okay, so the first name would be Reuben, okay? Reuben, it means to behold a son. Does that bring something to our mind? Maybe Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Behold a son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen to this. Then it says here, Simon, or Simeon, Simeon, whose name means obedient. Jesus Christ, who is obedient, Philippians 2.8, and being found in fashion as man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And then Levi, whose name means joined. And Jesus Christ joined to his father. John 10.30 says, I and my father are one. John 20.17 says, Jesus said, he he says, touch me not, for I am not ascended unto my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend unto my father and your father and to my God and your God. He then ascended to, to be with the father in heaven. Then we come to praise, come to Judah. His name means praise. And boy, is Jesus Christ worthy of praise. Revelations 5, 12, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And there is coming a day, guys. Here's Jesus. He's in heaven. He's receiving praises. But guess what? There is coming a day, a day of judgment. Dan is the next name. It says judge. 2 Corinthians 5.10, I just read it to you. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone receive the things done in his body, according to that which he hath done, whether it be good or bad. And while that judgment's taking place, and while we stand before the Lord in heaven, there is a judgment going on this earth at the same time, that same name Dan is going to apply to this planet as tribulation is taking place on this earth. And there will be an awful judgment worse than we can possibly imagine. And through all that judgment, we come to the next name, Naphtali. His name means struggle or strife. And on this earth, 
there is going to be struggle and there's going to be strife. Revelation 17, 6 is this. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints. That woman is talking about Jezebel. Jezebel is a picture of the false religion that will be upon this earth during the time of tribulation, the Antichrist religion. And what it's going to do, it's going to persecute anyone who truly is a follower of Christ. And the same things they saw in the Crusades where they would hunt down and kill true believers. It's going to be during that time of the tribulation more horrific than we can possibly imagine. There will be strife, unbelievable strife. And then he says here, and there, uh, and with the, he says, and I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. This is her, the, the, the death of the, of the Christians upon this time. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. That word admiration means just astonishment because he says, you know what he's imagining? He's going, look, they're killing people in the name of God. People have killed people in the name of God for hundreds of years. It doesn't mean it was God. It means people following a false truth. But there will be a faithful few. Gad is the next name. And then his name means fortune. There will be a faithful few. And guess what? They will face the martyrdom during that time. But they will receive fortune from God. Matthew 24. And Matthew 24, if you're not aware of this, this is a tribulation this has is, this is got a tribulation context as we're talking about this in Matthew 24, 13. This is referencing those that are during the tribulation. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. You've got people out there that believe if you're a good person until the end of your life, you're somehow that's going to be salvation. Salvation is not based upon works. It's based upon grace and grace alone by faith in Jesus Christ. Then Revelation 7, 14 says this, And I said unto her, said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, They are they which come out of great tribulation, those that came out of the tribulation, and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Fortune. Then we come to Asher. Asher. Asher, whose name means happy. And I can guarantee you, they're going to be very happy when they're standing before the Lord, having left behind the horrors of this world. Revelation 18, 20 says, Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye, shall, and ye, holy, and ye holy apostles and prophets. For God hath avenged you on her, referencing that Jezebel religion, and received, listen to this, Issachar, which name means rewards, rewards. And listen to this, they will receive their rewards from Almighty God, Revelation 7, 15 through 17. Therefore are they before at the throne of God and serve him day and night, his temple, and he, set that, and he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither they thirst any more. Neither shall the sun light on them nor any nor heat, for the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of water, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. This great, beautiful healing was they receive their rewards. The next name is Zebulun. It means to dwell. And having gone through what they've gone through, now they will dwell with the Lord. And then we get to the number eleven. Joseph, whose name means added, added. And they will be added to the chorus of those singing the praises of God. Revelations 4, verses 10 and 11. The four and 20 elders fall down before him and sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Which brings us to the last name, Benjamin whose name translates the son of the right hand. How awesome is this? And we, along with they, will stand and look into the eyes of our Savior. Mark 14, 62, Jesus said this, 
I am and ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And maybe that's just a crazy coincidence that those words happen to line up just that way and end up like that on that picture. But what we found is as we studied the Bible, this whole scripture, the entire Bible is all writing towards one thing, the second coming of the Lord. That's, it's all, that's the theme of the Bible all the way through. And look at this. Even in this breastplate, the very same theme is pictured yet again in the stones and the names on a breastplate that Aaron is going to wear. How awesome is that? The breastplate of judgment. Verse 15. And they made upon the breastplate chains at the ends of wreathen work of pure gold. So they've got golden chains that they've made. And understand it says pure gold representative of the fact that it is <clears throat> a pure representation of God's righteousness and holiness. Verse 16. And they made two ouches of gold and two gold rings and put the, ring, put the two rings in the two ends of the breastplate. We're talking about the upper part of the breastplate. Now there are going to be two rings. They're going to be mounted right here on either sides of this for a mounting point. Um, then you're going to see here, it says, and the, so the chains are, it, verse number 18, we're on 18 now, um, and it says, and the, the two ends of the two wreathen chains were fastened in the two ouches and put them on the shoulder piece of the ephod thereof. Okay, so now we have the shoulder pieces here, and what we find here is these chains are now going to be connected to the rings that are on the breastplate, and those chains are going to connect up to the shoulders. So when this thing is worn, it's going to hang off the shoulders, and it's going to be mounted right here, connected in the center, okay? Everybody with me? Right on. You guys are all just like, hopefully I'm, you're still with me. Let's hope. <laughs> if not, I'm just going to fly on by and y'all just do the best you can to catch up. You know how I am. Okay. So the chains are attached uh, to that. So what this does, it unifies the garment. This ties it all together. Okay. So this breastplate has the 12 stones, the golden chains, and the shoulder stones mounted in, in gold. And we see here that not only will the people go before God uh, as the children of Israel, unified on the shoulders of the high priest, but we see here also individually, they're going to be carried on the chest, representing not only accountability as a church as a whole, but also accountability individually as we see them on the breastplate. In our last message, we saw how God pictured in the high priest the fact that he would bear the burdens of the people on his shoulders, the burdens of sin upon his shoulders, and that he would make that yearly atonement unto God. And with the breastplate, it becomes here, we see, becoming a little bit more individual. So we saw here the fact that the high priest was making a payment for sin. This was to satisfy the judgment of God upon Israel. And it was a picture of God as our high priest who bears our sins upon himself on the cross, right? In doing so, he saves us from judgment, praise God. But listen to this. So it makes sense that the two elements that are connected here are connected by pure golden chains representing God's holiness. Verse 19. And they made two rings of gold and put them on the two ends of the breastplate upon the border of it, the, uh, which was on the side of the ephod inward. So now we're talking about the lower corners, okay? So here in these lower corners, we've got connections. Verse 20. And they made two golden rings and put them on the two, two sides of the ephod underneath toward the forepart of it, over against the other coupling thereof above the curious girdle of the ephod. So we've got the curious girdle tied here. And what he's saying is we're going to sew two rings right here into the ephod, these rings right here, okay? And we're going to see what the purpose of that is. This whole breastplate is supposed to be mounted in place. Once it's all tied in, it's supposed to be nice and tight. Next verse. And they did bind the breastplate by rings into the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue that it might be above the curious girdle of the ephod that was the breastplate might not be loosed from the ephod as the Lord commanded Moses. So we see here the breastplate, it's going to be hanging off the shoulders. Now they're going to have these rings here and rings here. They're going to take a blue ribbon. They're going to tie between the two and they're going to sash this thing down so it's nice and tight. So when he moves, it is locked in. 
Interestingly, remember blue, is a, it, that color blue means healing power of God. So it allows God, the judgment of God, represented in the breastplate to make contact with God's holiness, represented in the ephod, is the eternity, right? Remember, a ring is a picture of eternity, a golden ring, that is the healing power of God that will tie them together. Titus 3, 5 through 7 says this, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration of renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal glory, by way of Christ and Christ alone. You and I will never, by our righteous works, ever become a righteous person. The Bible says that all of your righteousness appears filthy rags before the Lord. Filthy rags. Because we always have, unfortunately, a selfish purpose for what we do. When I do something kind for somebody, I really, really, really hope somebody saw me. Anybody? Am I the only one? Be honest, right? We love for people to see it. We would love people to go, hey, man, it was so nice to see what you did. We love to get that fulfillment in our own hearts. Our only access to eternal life is through the healing power of God displayed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And Aaron, a picture of our Savior, is to be a living representation of God's love for humanity in his service as the high priest. And check this out. Here's an awesome connection to the armor of God. We saw it in the sash, the belt of truth. But now we've got a breastplate. And in that Ephesians 6, it's called the breastplate of righteousness, godliness. And what's it mean? It means that my life is a representation of Christ. When you look at me, you look at my heart, what am I doing? I'm protecting my heart from the evils of this world. I'm not allowing the the world to impact me. I'm rising above it. I'm trying to live a life that makes a difference. I'm defending my heart from the evils of this world. Listen to what is said of the breastplate here. And this is in Genesis, or actually in Exodus 28. We're going to go back to the instructions. Here's where the instructions are coming up from God about this breastplate to Moses. And Aaron shall bear the names of the children of Israel in the breastplate of judgment upon his heart. Listen to this. When he goeth in unto the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually, and thou shalt put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be upon Aaron's heart. When he goeth in before the Lord, and Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel upon his heart before the Lord continually. It's a matter of the heart. And you and I as believers, man, we get caught up in our works. We get caught up in our service. We get caught up on, our, on, our, on, on the, 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 what we look like to the world, what we claim to be. My tattoo of a, of a cross, my bumper sticker of a cross, my T-shirt of a cross. But when I look in my heart, what do I see? Do I see the righteousness of God? Is that what shines out? Is that what God sees? Because remember, He doesn't see the outside stuff. He looks beyond it right into our heart. And He evaluates us based upon that. And understand that, Paul, that, that, that Aaron here is a picture, a picture of who it is we need to be. And you see that I had a mention of the Urim and the Thummim. The Urim and the Thummim, we don't exactly know what they are. We know it has something to do with delineating or fitting, figuring out kind of what God's will is. Here's a, 1 Samuel 28, 6 kind of gives us an example of that, to us, a little education for us. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord answered him not, neither by dreams, nor by Urim, nor by prophet. We don't know if these were dice, if these were lots. We're not sure exactly what they are, but that was what was supposed to go inside that pouch, inside the breastplate. But what we do see standing out here is a very distinct thing, point that God's making. The heart of Aaron the heart of Aaron. In these two verses, he says it three different times. That distinct picture, distinct picture of Aaron's heart and the symbolism there. 
So where we saw last week that the high priest was symbolically carry the burdens of the people, their sins upon his shoulders and the onyx stones. So we're talking about a burden with a breastplate. He will, again, he will again carry them before the Lord, but there's a difference, right? With your shoulders, that's where we labor, right? That's where we labor. So here he's going to labor for the people. But what happens with the breastplate? Not only is he supposed to, instead of laboring for the people, he is supposed to love the people as he carries them before the Lord. He's got to love them. You see, his duties were not just to serve the people, but to serve them with the right heart. It's all about what is in here. Is he truly, truly cares? Because you and I can be busy doing the good works, lots of good works, and our heart actually go far from God. Jesus confronts the, the, the Pharisees, and he tells them, he says, look, you know what? You guys are so worried about cleaning the outside of the cup, but the inside's filthy. You're all about appearing a certain way to the world. But the problem is, the real you isn't clean. He sees within us. And if you notice in that verse in chapter number 23, he rips them to pieces because you know what the word he uses in the beginning of like seven different times? Hypocrite. Hypocrite. And there's an exclamation point. This is Jesus saying it. Hypocrite. 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 And many times, I, ha I hate to tell you, but guys, many times he's talking to me. Many times. I'm trying to be godly. I'm trying to do the right thing, but I find myself falling short day after day after day. Amen. And guess what? As human beings, that's a part of the struggle. That's a part of the fight. That's what it's talking about, denying ourselves. But see, he's supposed to be a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the thing with Aaron. And he's supposed to do what he does with love. And see, with Jesus, you can clearly see that's the case. In this picture for our high priest, John 15, verses 12 through 13 says this, This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. Guys, it was love that drove Jesus to the cross. Amen. Right? It was love that kept him on the cross. It wasn't a couple of nails that kept him up there. It was love that kept him up there. God could have come down just like that. It was love. It was love that caused him to, to give his righteous life for unrighteous men. None of us deserve the love of God. Not one. But I want you to know, if you were the only person on earth because of his love for us and because of his love for you, he still would have come. Amen. Because there's no other way. We can't do enough good works. We can't erase our past. Jesus came because there was no other way. It's what drove him. And see, that's what's supposed to drive us. The same love is supposed to drive us. It's supposed to be about us loving others. The fact that you and I, we endure the hardships and the pain of sometimes helping someone that's going through a tough time. And we don't sit there and go, oh, man, them again? Oh, all right, this is going to be a long call. I can tell you that much. Who's ever been there, right? Some people just weigh on our souls. I mean, God says, hey, look, I put you in their life for a purpose. Some people are out there that are so broken, and they think, you know what? No one can understand my pain. And yet you have a story where you look back in your life and you go, I have a pain that no one could ever understand. And as God has helped you to understand and as God's given you healing through that pain, suddenly you realize one day when you cross paths with this person who has a pain that thinks no one else can understand. And you look in your tool belt of ministry and you pull out this loss of a child, loss of a parent, drug addiction in your family, broken marriage. Drug, I mean, drug abuse, whatever it is. 
and you take out this picture that they think no one else can possibly understand. And you say, can I tell you a little something about my story? Can I show you this? And it speaks to them like no one else can. Because they think there is someone who can understand where I'm at. Guys, I tell you as somebody who's been through some pretty awful pains in my life, but I wouldn't change one of them. Because they're the greatest ministry tools that God's given us to minister to hurting people. And that's why we're here. It's not about forgetting things and moving on and focusing on our happiness. It's about focusing on our holiness. Because your life can suddenly impact this world for eternity. Instead of just rolling on and fulfilling ourselves, we start looking at ways God can use us. And it changes the world. Our love for our Savior, it's that love that should cause us to give up our sinful desires and our fleshly lusts to bring glory to Him. Greater love hath no man than this than a man lay down his life for his friend. And I can tell you this, there is no better friend to humanity than the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And if you're not embracing a man, you are missing out. If you've never embraced a man, you need to. He loves you more than you could possibly imagine what love is. He faced judgment for us. He suffered in our place. But the question we have to ask ourselves, is he our friend? Do we treat him the way we do a friend? Do we give him our time? Do we give him our ear? Do we give him our heart? If you really love someone on this earth, you'll do those things. God deserves greater love than that. Amen. No greater love than this than a man laid down his life for his friend. God is your friend. This is the love we should have for him. We should be willing to give up our lives for his. Matthew 16, 25, Jesus said this, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. He's saying, look, you know what? If you stop chasing this world, you'll find out what life is really about. You stop trying to fulfill yourself and worry about fulfilling my will, you'll find out what this life is really about. You'll finally live as opposed to exist on this planet. It's called sacrificial love. Whatever we do to serve others should always be driven by selfless, sacrificial love. Because if it's not, if it's not driven by that, what we'll find is in God's eyes, it doesn't even count as service. It doesn't count as service unto God. It doesn't count as service unto others. It counts as service unto self because of the heart. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3. Paul said this, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. He says, Though I have incredible gifts and though I can speak incredibly eloquently, though I can pour out the word of God to people and I can share with them the truth, if, I have not, if, my, if not charity, which charity is the love of God personified through humanity. He says, If I'm not doing this for the Lord, he says, I become as tinkling brass as sounding cymbals. He says that all my words just become noise. They have no value. Yep. Verse 2, he says this, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. 
He says, it has no value. Though I have all these incredible godly gifts, it has no value. Verse 3, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, I give everything I own. I give everything I own. And though I give my body to be burned, I'm willing to offer my life. I go to the mission field and I give my life if I do it. And he says, and have not charity. It profiteth me nothing. Nothing. And guys, what I need you to understand is this is talking about the judgment seat. This is when you stand before the Lord one day. This is the criteria God's going to judge us on. He's going to look at our life. And when we read this, we go, well, how does it fit? Think about the fact that one day you're going to stand before him. You're going to stand before him. We all are. Maybe it'll change our perspective on our service. Because you see, if we won't, because it won't just be about the high priest and how he does what he does. It won't be the procedures and all that stuff. What God's really going to be concerned with is Aaron's heart. Aaron's heart. He had to make sure his heart was right. Because remember, if the priest were to walk in and he wasn't right with God, they tied a rope around his ankle. And in the next part we're going to study on the robe, they put bells on it. It wasn't just to play music. It was to let you know that he was alive. If he's moving, no problem. To, no, we don't need to drag him out. But if he went through the veil and it was like, cha-ching, 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 kum. Hey, you okay in there? What do they do? Drag him back out. Drag him out. He needed to make sure he was right with the Lord. He wanted to be a picture of righteousness. Remember, a breastplate of righteousness. The armor that protects us is a holy life, a godly life. Pursuing holiness, that's what God expects of us. It protects us from evil. He's supposed to be a picture of righteousness from his clothing to the intentions of his heart. And the same should be true of us as well. It should be true of us as we serve our community, our family, our church, and our Lord. Because it's the heart that matters. Most importantly, God. Do we serve these and the Lord with selfless, sacrificial love, being a picture of righteousness? Is that what we do? Because listen to this verse. Matthew 6.20 says this. But lay up for yourselves. Now think about this from a judgment seat perspective. That's what this is referencing, okay? But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. He says, lay up things here because they last forever. But then listen. Or, so we're either doing it for God and we're doing it selflessly, or are we secretly serving ourselves, displaying an image of righteousness to the world? You can fool all of us. We can fool anybody. Well, we could be the trickiest in the world, yet God sees the truth. Matthew 6, 19 says this of things that we do for ourselves. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal, where none of it will last. It will burn up with a fervent heat. Whichever one we choose, we get to pick, remember? It's up to us every day. Judgment day is coming for us all. And it is only through a humbly, humbly coming before the Lord, through having been fully submitted to God, coming to him by faith, that we can serve him with the right heart. That's what he's trying to do. Help us to do what he's called us to do. He's given us all the pictures in the world. He's revealed to us through his own life what it means to love, how to have compassion upon people that are broken, how to see those that are lonely and give them, give them comfort how to see the broken and show them what it means to be restored, how to share truth with people who are following a lie. Bottom line is this. He deserves our best. And what we have to ask ourselves is, 
Is he getting our best? Is he getting our best? And if he's not, then why? Why? Revelations 3, verses 15 through 17. I'm almost done. This is written to the church of Laodicea, which is prophetically speaking to the church age that we're in right now, the seventh church age. And right now, this is written to you and I prophetically. So listen to this. We need to listen to this speaking to us. Jesus says this himself. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou art cold or hot, so that because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth, because thou sayest, I am rich. This is what we say. I am rich, increased with goods, and have need of nothing. We look at our Christian walk compared to everybody else and go, man, <laughs> I'm killing it, man. I'm in church almost every single week. I mean, I'm in Bible study too. I mean, hello. Do you know I have a Bible in my car? Did you know that? Do you know, I mean, dude, I even have tracks in my car. Oh my gosh. Dude, have you seen my Instagram? I got Jesus all over it, man. Have you seen my Facebook posts? Dude, pictures of me at church. Hello. It's right in front of the cross, taking pictures. Dude, I'm all over this thing. Compare me to the rest of the world, I'm killing it, man. As a Christian, I'm riding high. I know God's pleased with me. That's from our perspective because guess what? That's what the world around us, this world is godless, man. And we think just because we're a little bit different, we think we're something special. And what does he say to them? This is Jesus. He says, you believe all these things because thou sayest, thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and I have need of nothing. I don't need you, Lord. I'm doing great. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You think you got it all covered, but in reality, you're believing a lie. You're missing the boat. You're blind to your own blindness. You can't see your failures because you compare yourself to the world. But what we're supposed to do is turn to the perfect law of liberty. And this is supposed to be the mirror that we look into our life. And if you compare ourselves to Christ, wow, we got a long way to go. Yep. Right? And we think about that, understanding that's written to the church age, and it ends with naked. When we stand before the Lord, guess what? That day's coming. Will we stand before Him naked and ashamed? Or will we give our hearts to God while we're here on earth and stop focusing on ourselves and our own fulfillment and our own happiness and our own desires and we give our heart to God and we stand before Him at that point beautifully arrayed and holy garments. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for today and God helping us, Lord, to see a picture into the judgment. Lord, help me. Thank you so much for allowing us to see the truth of the word of God, all the beautiful things that you've taught us. And God, the, the challenge that we have in this life to rise above uh, the mediocrity of this world, to rise above Christianity of today, God, that we might be something different, that we might be a truly peculiar people, that we might bring forth the praises of God upon this planet. And that, Lord, we might be, as, as, if, as Philippians tells us, to be a light. We are to shine as lights in the darkness. The sun is the source of light. The moon is a reflection of that light. God put that in nature to show us who we're supposed to be. We are a dead rock. We have nothing to, sh to share, but yet that light of that sun can make that moon shine like a light at night. And God, we're to be that light. 
We're supposed to reflect the light of Christ into this dark, dark world. The problem is so many times the world gets between us and the light. And just like a lunar eclipse, the world blocks out the light of God. And in our Christian lives, when the world gets in between us and God, we are, we are living an eclipse. and We no longer impact this planet. God, I pray that you'll help us to embrace what you've shown us today. God, help us to see ourselves for who you see us to be, not for who we've convinced ourselves that we are. And Lord, I pray, God, that you'll help us to deal with our own hearts, God, to cleanse these things out of ourselves, Lord, that we might walk with you. With our heads bowed and with our eyes closed. If you're here today and you say, you know what, Pastor? I don't know that I'm even a child of God. I don't know where I stand with him. Guys, 19 years ago, I had never been in church my entire life. I lived an entire life in a secular world. Christmas to me was Santa Claus. Easter was Easter Bunny. I'd never, ever had a Bible open before me. I'd never been in a church service. But someone cared enough about me because they had the love of Christ in them that they shared the truth with me one day. And it was through hearing the truth, not being convinced, but simply seeing the truth for myself. And my wife and I bowed our heads and we received Christ as our Savior and it changed our destiny. And if you're here today and that's never happened to you, there's never been a time in your life when you've bowed your, your will to God's. There's a lot of people say, I believe in God and praise the Lord for that. But the devil believes in God. I guarantee you, he's not going to heaven. It's not a matter of belief. It's a matter of faith, bowing our will to God. And if there's been a time in your life when you've done that, you've bowed your will to God, you've asked him to save you and he's done it, praise God, live for him. But if you've never done that, if you've been religious your whole life, if you believe in God and all those things, but you've never given him your heart, you have that opportunity today. If you're online, if you're watching this record, it doesn't matter. It doesn't take a preacher. This is between you and him. God's speaking right now and he's calling you to him with our heads bowed and eyes closed. If you want to receive Christ as your Savior, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray. It's not a magic prayer. It's not a ceremony. It's nothing like that. Remember, God listens to the heart, not the words. He's listening to your heart. And if you want to receive him, and you know he's calling you, and you want to respond, I'm going to pray. I'm going to help you to pray. This isn't going to be out loud. This is going to be in your heart and mind. This is you talking to God, just you and him. And as he draws you, if you respond, he'll save you right where you are. So their heads bowed and eyes closed. If you want to receive Christ, repeat after me in your heart and mind, and you'll be able to do just that. Repeat after me, dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. God, I understand that my reason for damnation is my own life, my own choices. God, I believe and trust that you came to this world to save humanity. And I'm asking you personally, Lord, to forgive me of my sins, to pay my debt, to give me a home in heaven. By faith, I'm receiving you as my Savior. Help me live for you. God, thank you for saving me. I'll see you in heaven one day. For it's in Jesus' name I pray and give thanks. Amen.